it's a bit of a minefield to get through there with this thing. Morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. My name is Matt. Uh, can't believe it. Christmas. It's here again already. I feel like it was Christmas last week. All the stores are, we'll have the uh, hot cross buns in the stores in a couple of weeks' time. I can't believe it. But here we are. Uh, in our last week in this series in the lead up to Christmas, Image of the Invisible. Uh, we're looking at three of the most beautiful and breathtaking passages in all of Scripture uh, about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, incarnation means in fleshing that God put on flesh and became one of us. Uh, And the reason we're looking at the incarnation is because at the heart of Christmas is not a baby in a manger. At the heart of Christmas is the incarnation of God putting on flesh, becoming one of us. We sing about this in carols. Here's a famous one. Here is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. We get to see him. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The invisible God becoming visible. And this is the promise that God had made to his people 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And so in Isaiah 7 verse 14 God promised, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's a sign? Well, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then this same promise, 700 years later, at the birth of Jesus, uh, is repeated again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, where it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christmas is not about a baby. Christmas is about celebrating the incarnation that God had put on flesh, became one of us, that the creator enters into the creation, puts on skin, the invisible God becoming visible. But here's the thing. I don't think we grasp really how huge that is, do we? I don't think we grasp it. I don't think we really understand deeply what the incarnation really means. We've become desensitized to it. Um, We reduce Christmas down to little Jesus lying in the manger. And when Jesus is a baby, he doesn't really ask much of us, does he? Now, my favorite movie of all time is Ace Ventura 2, of course, When Nature Calls. It's much better than the first one. But my second favorite movie is this. Any fans? Two people, good. Talladega Nights, the, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Uh, this should be the new Christmas movie, I reckon. Don't worry about, um, what's that? What's the one they from? Die Hard. Don't worry about Die Hard. This should be the new Christmas movie. It's really, it's a Christian movie, I think, at the end of the day. Because <laughs> as Ricky sits down with his family to eat a meal, he says grace throughout the meal. Uh, here's, here's some examples of him saying grace. He says, Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fists. Or dear eight pound six ounce newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Now eventually his wife, as he says these graces, reminds Ricky that, you know, Jesus actually grew up. This is how he replies to that though. He says, 
I like Christmas Jesus best. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. He likes baby Jesus. Now, at, at one level, it's a bit sacrilege, isn't it, to, to speak like this? But it does raise a good point. It raises the point that, do you see how big Jesus is? Do you have a big enough vision of who Jesus is? Or is he just Christmas Jesus to you? Baby Jesus, laying there in a manger? Or teenage Jesus? Or bearded Jesus? Or whatever other Jesus you've created? Because our passage today, that Jade read out, Colossians 1, 15 to 23, is one of, if not, I think, the greatest passages in all of Scripture talking about Jesus. It's breathtaking in its scope. It gives us this vision of Jesus as preeminent, as supreme over all things and all people. It holds Jesus up in his rightful place at the center of everything. So is that the vision you have of Jesus? Or this Christmas, do you need a reordering of your life, of putting Jesus back into the center of all things? Or maybe for you, for the first time, putting him at the center of all things. Well, let's jump in. Let's have a look at this passage. It'd be great to have that open in front of you, Colossians chapter 1. I think the key summary verse of this passage is the purpose statement that you get right in the middle of it. So have a look at the second half of verse 18. It says, So that, as in with the purpose that, in everything he, that's Jesus, might have the supremacy. This passage is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, the word supreme, or in some other translations, the word preeminent, uh, means the highest place of ascendancy, above all, overall, surpassing all, to the point that nothing or no one else comes even close. That's what this passage is seeking to do for us. It's to show Jesus as supreme over both the creation of all things, but also over the new creation which he establishes in his death and resurrection. Now, the structure of this passage is really divided into two sections with that purpose statement in the middle. You have uh, the supremacy of Jesus over the creation of all things in the first half. And then in the second half, you have the supremacy of Jesus over the new creation. And so we're going to break our um, time together into those two sections. So let's jump in. First section, what I have for us is five things from this passage that show Jesus' supremacy over all things. Five things that are going to give us a bigger vision this Christmas of who Jesus is. So let's jump in. Let's have a look. Now, Jesus didn't come just to teach us about God. He didn't come to be an example of what God is like. He is God. So have a look at verse 15 says, the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, God's invisible, his spirit. No one has ever seen God. But the Son, the second member of the eternal Godhead, in his incarnation, in the putting on of flesh, is the image of the invisible God. Not just an image, but the image of the invisible God. And just a couple of verses later, the Apostle Paul goes on to expand what he means by this. In verse 19, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All the fullness of God, his character, his attributes, everything that God is, he's 
completeness, all his power and majesty and glory, his holiness and splendor, all his grace and mercy and love, God was pleased to have all of that dwell in Jesus Christ. He is the full and final revelation of the invisible God. Jesus himself says that when the disciples ask him, Jesus, show us the Father, show us God. This is how he responds. He says, anyone who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. If you want to know who God is, if you want to see God, Jesus says, look at me. I am the image of the invisible God in all its fullness. Now it goes on in chapter 2, verse 9. If you flick over to chapter 2, verse 9, he says it this way. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. See, in the incarnation, the fullness of God lives in bodily form. God the Son adds to his divinity humanity. God puts on flesh, dwells among us, fully God, fully human. And so Jesus is the fullness of the deity here in bodily form. He is the tangible, touchable representation of God, the perfect realization of God and humanity. He is the image of the invisible God, the God-man. And just for the record, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't rise as a spirit. He rose bodily, physically. Jesus right now has ascended to the right hand of the Father. As he's sitting at the right hand of God, he is in a body right now. The incarnation was not just for 33 or 34 years that he, has, he was here on earth. He is now eternally in flesh. When he returns, he will be in flesh. In the new creation, Jesus will be in flesh. He's the God who became man. And so number one, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the God who put on flesh. That's the first one. Second one from this passage, Jesus is the creator of all things. Have a look at verse 15 again. It says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. Now, as you read this for the first time, and in my community group, I've got a community group that is a bunch of uh, not yet Christians or just become Christians, and we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, and as we read this verse, people started going, oh, does that mean Jesus was like the first created being? And I was like, well, if you just had this verse to go with, you could probably come to that conclusion. In fact, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. They teach that Jesus wasn't God, but that he was the first created being. But Paul goes on to explain what he means here in the next verse with the, the four. Remember, whenever there's a four, it's explaining what's, co uh, what's come just before it. It's giving you the because. Let's have a look at verse 15 again. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for, or because, in him all things were created. Now, if a JW ever comes knocking on your door, you can invite them in, be loving, sit them down, get them a cup of tea, and then ask them to explain this. See what they say. And then gently show them, no, it's not saying he was a created being. He's the one over creation. Before in him, all things were created. There are only two categories here. There is creator and there is creation. And Jesus is firmly on this side, the creator. He's the one that has created all things. And so what does it mean when it says that 
Jesus is the firstborn over creation. Well, it's not that he's the first created being. It's that he ranks first over all of the creation because he's the one who created it all. So he ranks over it. And just in case you're wondering if all things really means all things, well, he goes on to explain that. Verse 16, he says, Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Now, that doesn't leave a lot, does it? That's a lot of things. Things up there, the universe, the galaxies, the stars, space, things that we haven't even discovered yet. He created those. The things down here, from the smallest little cell to the giant blue whale, he created it all. Everything that you can see and the things you can't see, the things you don't even know about yet, he created them, both physical and spiritual. And all the powers and authorities, the rulers, whether political, spiritual, whatever they are, everything, Jesus created it. And just in case you're still doubting, is that everything? Well, he concludes in verse 16, all things have been created through him. In the beginning, when God spoke the creation into existence, he did it through the Son. Jesus is the eternal creator of all things. That's how big he is. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Number two, Jesus is the creator of all things. But number three, he doesn't just create and then walk away from his creation. He is the sustainer of all things. Let's have a look at verse 17. It says, in him, all things hold together. Jesus is not distant from his creation. He is intimately involved with every piece of it. Every th single thing that happens in this world, he is intimately involved in. Jesus says that not even a sparrow falls from the sky outside of the will of God, that we were knit together in our mother's wombs, that every hair on your head is numbered, which is an easier thing for some than others, that the earth as it is spinning on an axis at 23.5 degrees, I had to look that up just to make sure I got it right, the fact that that is happening is sustained by Jesus. The fact that your heart right now is pumping blood through your body is because of the sustaining work of Jesus Christ. Every atom and molecule, the multitude of galaxies, everything that is not God, which is everything except for God, is held together by Jesus Christ. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are completely and utterly dependent on his sustaining work of upholding all things. If he stopped for even a second, this world would cease to exist, including you. Jesus holds all things together. That's how big he is. And so because he is the image of God, because he's the creator and the sustainer of all things, number four, Jesus is before all things. Before there even were things, Jesus was there. He was the eternal pre-existing triune God. Verse 17, he is before all things. There was nothing before Jesus. It's another way of saying he created all things. Uh, he's eternal. Before there was even a beginning, he was there. And so because he is before all things... Jesus Christ is absolute reality. He is the reality. Everything else is secondary to him. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here as he 
writes this list. He's trying to say in every possible way he can just how big, how glorious, how majestic this Jesus is. And so point five, if all of that is the case, then he says, well, all things are for Jesus. Verse 16 says, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, don't miss this. It's only two words, but this is so important because what it's saying is that everything in existence has its origin, its existence, and its purpose in Jesus Christ, that we are not supreme over our own life, that we are not at the center, that this world does not revolve around us, that your life, this world, this universe, everything that has been created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers or authorities, spiritual realities, whatever they are, are all for the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Everything that exists exists for Jesus. You exist for Jesus, not him for you. He is not your little genie that you get to rub when you need to pass an exam or when you have someone who's sick in your family. All things, including you, including me, have been created through him and for him. Which means that if your life isn't for Jesus, if you're not living for him, then you are missing out on the great purpose of your life. You're missing out on the reason for your existence. He is the goal. He is the meaning. He's the purpose for which you were created in the first place. He is the image of God. And if you want to know your creator, he has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. He has come incarnate, dwelt among us to show us God. This is the big vision of Jesus that we need to have. This isn't Jesus in a manger, is it? This is big Jesus. This is Jesus, the image of the invisible God. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's God in the flesh. That's the vision we need to have of him this Christmas. And if this is who Jesus is, then of course, all of our life needs to be for him. What else could you possibly live for if that's who he is? So my question is, is that the God you worship? Or have you created your own little God in your image? Or baby Jesus? Or teenage Jesus? Do you worship this God? The supreme, preeminent God? If your vision of him is anything less, then what you've done is created a God in your image. One that exists for you not you for him. Okay, that's, that's the first half of the passage. Um, then Paul moves on to a second half. Now, don't worry, this second half will be a bit shorter. Um, but now from the lofty heights from which Paul has just been, explaining who Jesus is, showing who Jesus is, he now turns to this second half, and it begins with another he is statement. You see it in verse 18. He says, he is the head. Now, if you're reading this, what you'd be expecting him to say next is something like, he is the head of all things. He's said all things so many times, or he's the head of the universe or something like that. But that's not where he goes. 
What he says next is this. He says he is the head of the body, the church. So what Paul does is he uses the metaphor of a body and says Jesus is the head of that body. And it, but it's not of some grand universal thing. It's of the church. The word um, translated here for church is the word gathering. It's one of the typical words that's used throughout the New Testament to explain the church. Now, Paul wrote this letter uh, to a little house church in the city of Colossae about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This little house church probably had a few dozen people in it, meeting in a, in a house. For these first hearers of this letter, as it was read out to them, this must have come as quite a shock from these lofty heights to this little thing. It's like this gear change here. It's like saying that the head of some multinational corporation is being placed as the head of my three-year-old son's piggy bank. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so what's going on here? Well, Paul further explains it. Have a look at verse 18. Says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, just as Jesus was the firstborn and before all things in terms of creation, now Paul uses this same language again in this second half, he uses the language of beginning and firstborn, but here it's not about creation. He says, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. What Paul is saying here is that there is a new creation, a new beginning. And Jesus is the firstborn of that new creation that began with his death and resurrection. John Woodhouse, who was the principal of the Bible college I went to, he says it this way. He says, in the death of Jesus, God was doing something fully comparable to the creation of all things. It was that big. It as important as that, and as purposeful as that. On first reading what seems like such a small thing compared to the great heights of the first half, that is Jesus being the head of this gathering, the church, is really the beginning of a new creation that is coming. But did you see how that new creation came into effect? Here's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, if you stop and think about that for a second, again, I think we become so desensitized to it, but it's this same Jesus, the preeminent, always existing, creator God of the universe who's put on flesh. He's the one who enters into his creation and dies. Last week in Philippians 2, Charles took us through that passage, and it talks about Jesus becoming obedient to death. In one of Peter's first sermons, just after Jesus has risen from the dead, the apostle stands up in front of a huge crowd that has gathered to hear him speak, and he says, you killed the author of life, the one who created life itself. You killed him. And so why does the author of life, the creator of all things, have to die? Well, you see... That even though Jesus was preeminent over all things, there has been a disruption to his rule. Currently, things and people do not acknowledge his supremacy. 
Just before this passage, if you look up a couple of verses to verse 13, Paul had already spoken about the dominion of darkness, the evil spiritual forces of this world. In verse 14, he spoke about the need for the forgiveness of sins, that people had chosen to reject God and rebel against him. And in our passage, it talks about death, that this world isn't as it should be, that there's sickness and death. You have Satan, you have sin, you have death. And so there is a reconciliation that needs to take place. There is peace that needs to be brought, shalom that needs to be established again. A new creation where all things we put right again. And so the question is, well, how is that possible? Well, verse 19 sorry, begins with another four. Remember the four explains what's come before it. So have a look at verse 19. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, what? Well, to reconcile all things to himself, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The creator steps into his creation, puts on flesh, so that he could be the sacrifice that brings reconciliation and peace. In other words, like the creation of all things, Jesus has done, through his death and resurrection, he has brought about a new creation where things will be reconciled back to himself by making peace through his blood that is shed on the cross. It took the death of the incarnate God to bring that about. So verse 22 but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. See that? It took the incarnation day for him to reconcile us back to himself. Now, do you see just how incredible that is? Again, this big vision of Jesus, the preeminent one, the creator and sustainer of all things, enters into his creation in order to die to bring about reconciliation and peace. The great fracture between God and his creation, between the dark evil forces, the rebellion of, and sin of people and death, has been conquered through his blood shed on the cross. What we could never do, God did through the sending of his son. That's what Christmas is about. Now, did you notice the scope of this reconciliation that takes place. You see it in verse 20. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now again, it's that language of all things. It's all throughout the passage. And just in case we're not sure what he's talking about, he adds it again. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. It should remind you of verse 16 where he's already said that and expanded on it. It means all things. This reconciliation that Jesus has won through his death and resurrection will restore himself to his rightful place as supreme and preeminent over his creation. There will be peace. Peace between us and God. You see that in the next chapter in verse 13 and 14. He forgave us all our sins, having uh, cancelled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Or the defeat of Satan, a couple of verses later in verse 15. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then the triumph of death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and as the firstborn of this new creation, which he has won through his death and resurrection. You see that in verse 12 of chapter 2. But that doesn't mean that all people will be saved because he gives the warning in the next verse, in verse 22. He says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's the truth of the gospel. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. In other words, in order to receive this reconciliation that God has brought through his son, you need to put your trust, your faith, your hope in the saving work of the cross. And you also need to continue in that, not move on from it as if there's something else to move on from. He's preeminent. What are you going to move on to? The day is coming when Jesus will return and every knee will bow and recognize that he is the supreme God of the universe. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the question is, will you do that willingly now? Will you trust him? Let me finish where we started with that same question. The question is, this Christmas, do you have a big enough vision of who Jesus is? Is he just a little baby in a manger to you? Or is he this extremely large God that we are given a picture of here in Colossians? This passage is meant to lift our eyes, to see him as he truly is. And if he really is this preeminent God, well, then we need a reordering of our lives, don't we? You can't hold anything back from this God. If you do, then he's not supreme over your life. You're supreme. Grace City, in Jesus Christ, we have been given the image of the invisible God. In the incarnation, God has come and made himself known to us. That's what Christmas is about. We can know the God who made us. And so this Christmas, is your Christ big enough? Is he clear enough? Is he supreme enough that he becomes the purpose of your life, the goal of your life, that your life is for him, not for yourself? Because that's who he is. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, that you were pleased to have your fullness dwell in him. We thank you that he is the image of the invisible God, that as we see him, we see you. Father, that we thank you that your son is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, that he upholds all things by the power of his word, that our lives, therefore, are for him. Father, I pray this Christmas that we would have that big vision of who Christ is. That we would not see him as a baby in a manger, but we would see him as he truly is, the preeminent, supreme God of this universe. And that we would worship him and live for him. 
And we pray this in his name. Amen.